Amen. Well, good morning again. Um, before I start the message, I just like to take a moment and uh, kind of recap something and point something out that we uh, we introduced last week and talked about last week during the message. Um, and in your bulletin, there's an insert, and at the top it says "Disciple: uh, A Life-Changing Journey in Christ with Others." Uh, and what we have been talking about is, is, is in, in the sermon series, but also in the last few months, is what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? How should our life reflect? trust in him. Uh, and, 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 and scripture shows us that you know, when we come to Christ and we encounter Christ, that our life should be different, that we should be changing and changed in the process. And, and in our lives, we can get so busy uh, and so hectic and so many things pulling at our, at our priorities and our time and our focus. And uh, so we thought that uh, at least I know that I need this at times is, is to have some intentionality about our relationship with Jesus Christ beyond just Sunday morning and serving, which is wonderful, but intentionality. How can I grow more and more into the person that God has called me to be? I mean, that's what we're called to do as disciples. Uh, it's, a, it's an ongoing journey. And so we've developed four questions to kind of guide us as individuals, but as a church, in your life groups, your ministry teams, your Bible studies, or your family gatherings, to really ask us, okay, how am I growing? How am I changing? What is God doing in my life? And so the four questions we've developed are, how have you seen the Lord at work this week in your life? How has God spoken to you through his word this week? In what ways is Jesus Christ calling you to serve or to share your faith with others? And how is Jesus inviting you to trust him more and in what area of your life? And so I encourage you to hold on to this. You'll be hearing more about it. I know the youth and, and the children's ministries are also using variations of these questions. And so we're trusting and hoping and believing that as we are intentional about our walk with Christ, that we'll grow as individuals and grow uh, as a church in our relationship with Jesus. So having said that, uh, let's take a look at the passage today from Luke uh, chapter 7 uh, that Melissa read just a few minutes ago. And... Um, in this passage, it's, it's helpful for us to think of it in contrast. The title is a, a stark contrast. Often people come to this passage and they, they focus on the contrast between the woman's response to Jesus and Simon the Pharisee's response to Jesus. And that's an important, important contrast. We can learn a lot from that. I'm going to dip into that a little bit. But what I'm going to drill down a little bit more on and focus a little bit more on is the contrast between Jesus' response to the woman and Simon the Pharisee's response to the woman. And what does that have to say to us as we try to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so a way to kind of be helpful maybe is to think of Scripture. Scripture is described in a lot of ways, a lot of metaphors, but one of the ways is a mirror. You know, you hold a mirror up and you look at it and you hopefully notice things about yourself, you know, changes and, or, or things you need to, you know, maybe, okay, I'm putting on weight or I've got a mole growing in a bad place or whatever it might be, or I need sleep, I'm getting bags in my eyes. You, you look at the mirror and, you, and hopefully you gain insight into yourself. Scripture is designed to, to do the same thing. We hold it up to our lives, and it reflects truth, God's design and purpose, God's character and love, and it also reflects the reality of our own lives. And so as we look at this story today, I'm going to encourage you to kind of hold up the story to your own life and say, okay, which character do I identify more with? All right, so let's, let's jump in together and look at this passage and, uh, to deal with uh, in, in, in Luke 7. And we're looking at the topic of, of mercy. Jesus said this in the, in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, we all want to be blessed. So, what does it mean to be merciful? 
Mercy begins with sympathy. You know, certainly with feeling another person's pain, seeing the need in their life, the situation, and, and feeling some sympathy or empathy for that. But it does not stop just at feeling. It must lead to action. Mercy always should lead to action. Mercy is, is better than pity. When we pity somebody, we feel sorry for them. We acknowledge their situation, their pain. Um, but we're not always moved to action. In fact, when you pity somebody, sometimes it's, it's, you're likely to look the other way or to, or to hurry past. Oh, I feel so sorry for them, but you kind of keep on moving. Mercy draws you closer to the person. Mercy invests in the other person. Mercy is, is different than compassion, too. It's better than compassion. Compassion, like mercy, involves feeling and action. So you see a, a natural disaster, you know, in our country, and people take up offerings, or there's GoFundMe online, or, you know, or donate clothes, or all great things, wonderful things. Uh, but that's kind of a natural response. It's an expected response. Uh, mercy is unexpected. It's kindness or compassion where it's not expected because the person showing mercy is under no obligation to show it or because the person's suffering was somehow caused by some poor choices, perhaps. So, so for example, say you're a student and you go to class and you have a teacher, you know they're very, very uh, strict about things and by the book and you go in and, oh my goodness, I didn't finish my, my assignment today. I, I, and, and they say, well, I'll give you this one-time pass. You can turn it in tomorrow. That's mercy. Okay? Or say you're driving and you run a, a red light or a stop sign. You're, you're in a hurry. The police officer pulls you over. They should give you a ticket. You deserve a ticket. They say, no, I'm going to give you a warning. That's, that's mercy. Mercy goes beyond what might be considered normal and natural. In one of his radio spots a few years ago, uh, before he died, Chuck Colson, remember the, the Watergate guy under Nixon, was convicted, uh, came to Christ in prison and had a wonderful ministry to prisoners for years and years and years afterwards. And he told a story from Iraq about a U.S. triage facility during the war over, overseas in Iraq that was doing its best to save the lives of two Iraqi insurgents, you know, the enemy soldiers. And the team uh, had done well with one. He was going to make it. The other one was not going to make it unless they found 30 pints of blood, which is a ton of blood. And a call went out to the facility for volunteers and, and dozens of, of U.S. soldiers lined up to donate. And at the head of the line was a, was a was a battle-hardened soldier named Brian. And when a, when a reporter asked him if it mattered to him that he was giving his blood to an enemy soldier, Brian replied, a human life is a human life. That's mercy, unexpected kindness toward a person in need. We should also point out that mercy is, is similar to grace. They kind of go together, peanut butter and jelly, mercy and grace, you know, um, milk and Oreo cookies, whatever it might be. Uh, but, but mercy and grace, they're similar and they go together, but there's a slightly difference, in, there's a slight difference in their focus. Mercy is a response to a person's need. Grace is a response to a person's sin. Mercy offers help or healing, but grace offers forgiveness and restoration. Mercy often precedes grace. It can lead to grace, but mercy is focused on the person's need rather than the person's sin. So taking this all together, we might say that mercy looks beyond a person's fault and sees his or her, her need. It's not concerned with how or why a person got into the condition they're in. It simply responds with unexpected kindness to the need. doesn't dismiss sin. doesn't excuse sin but chooses to respond to the need. The scripture in the Beatitudes says, talks about a tender heart. 
that we are to have the tender mercy like Jesus Christ, to have Christ-like hearts. So now that we've established what mercy is and what it's not, let's turn to our text for the day. And in the story, you find uh, we see the tender heart of Jesus. We also see that there's Simon the Pharisee, and we see that there's this woman. All we know about her, we don't know a name. Some people think it might have been Mary Magdalene. We don't know for sure. But whoever she was, it says she was a woman who lived a sinful life. That could be a, you know. But, but whatever that was, it says she lived a sinful life. So let's talk about Simon first. You know, Simon was a Pharisee. And often we, in church with circles, we think, oh, those Pharisees, they, they get a bad rap. They were, you know, we, we give them a bad rap. You know, they, they miss the point. They're judgmental. They argue with Jesus. They, they defy Jesus. They combat Jesus. But really, in that day, the Pharisees were the most devout people in Israel. They, were, they weren't clergy. They weren't paid to be religious. But they were lay people, laymen who devoted their entire lives to knowing, keeping, and promoting God's law. And so in first century Israel, they were considered the, the godliest people in the community, the people that you kind of aspired to and, and looked up to. And it would have been common practice in those days for a Pharisee religious leader to you know, entertain, to invite over a distinguished rabbi or speaker who was in their community, which is exactly what Simon the Pharisee did. He invites some religious friends to join him, and they're going to spend some time with Jesus. Sort of like if we had a guest speaker and a church chair and some of the staff said, hey, we're going to invite out that speaker, for lunch after church. Now, we're not told what Simon's motives are. You know, sometimes um, in Scripture we'll see that the Pharisees and Sadducees would try to set verbal traps for Jesus, try to trip him up, or put him in a situation where he'd have to make a choice to think he's going to lose either way. Um, We're not sure if that's what Simon was doing, or if he was genuinely interested in, in hearing from Jesus. But regardless, Jesus gathers at this man's house, and there's a crowd of people. Uh, people would have gathered around to listen in on the out, outskirts and listen to the powers that be, the big wigs talk. And this woman shows up. And that would have been shocking. Because she had a reputation in town. And I don't think it was because she littered or didn't pay her parking tickets. It's probably implying that there was maybe a prostitution or adultery or something like that. She did not have a good reputation. And she shows up and, and you can probably, probably surmise that she maybe wasn't dressed appropriately for the occasion. But regardless, her actions are very kind of sensual and inappropriate. She lets her tears fall on Jesus' feet, which would have been a very intimate thing to do. She lets down her hair, which in that day, the only time a woman would let down her hair would be in the bedroom. And... Um, she empties this perfume onto Jesus' feet and, and then she massages it into his skin. Now, I can, I'm pretty sure at that point there was a lot of awkwardness and awkward tension in the room. Um, they probably weren't doing a lot of speaking or eating. They were just watching Jesus and this woman and thinking, oh my goodness, what is going on? Does not Jesus understand who this woman is? And they're shocked and they're offended at what she's doing, but maybe more so they're shocked and offended by what Jesus is doing or not doing. Jesus seems comfortable, even welcoming of her presence and her public display of affection. And here's where the contrast starts. Jesus in verse 44 says, Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? 
pretty obvious question. Jesus knew the answer. Simon and the other men in the room had not taken their eyes off of her. She walked in, and they were shocked by her presence there and what she was doing. Simon had seen this woman, but all he could see was her sin and her reputation. Verse 39 gives us a glimpse into Simon's attitude. It says, when the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if he was a godly man, if he was an upstanding citizen, if he was a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The contrast is that Jesus saw something very different when he looked at this woman. He saw whatever woundedness and desperation had led her to such a place in life. He saw the abuse and exploitation she had suffered at the hands of men. He saw the guilt and the shame that kept her trapped in that destructive lifestyle. He looked beyond her sin and he saw her need. Now keep in mind this woman had probably only known two general responses from men in her past as an adult woman. Lust or judgment. Chances are every man in her life had either exploited her or condemned her, but not Jesus. He saw her as something more than merely a sexual sinner. He saw her as a human being, a person who needed what every person needs, love, acceptance, and forgiveness. So notice what Jesus doesn't do in the situation. He doesn't pull away in embarrassment to save his reputation. He doesn't rebuke her for the life she'd been living, even though he knew all about it. He doesn't correct her awkward expression of worship. That was what the Pharisees expected him to do. But Jesus did not respond in the expected fashion. Instead, he graciously receives her extravagant and unorthodox display of affection. He rises to her defense when those around the table want to pass judgment on her. He dignifies her behavior by describing it as, a, as worship of the highest order. And then he pronounces her forgiven of all of her offenses. That is that's mercy. That's unexpected kindness. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus said, for they will be shown mercy. Three times in the story, the woman is identified as a sinner. And Jesus himself used that word when he spoke to her, but mercy chooses to respond to the need instead of reacting to the sin. Think of it this way. Say you're going through your garage, your attic, or outbuilding on your property, and you come across some old paintings, and they're dusty and dirty, maybe some mud on them, kind of spatters, some fly specks or whatever. And you notice at the corner, at the bottom, one of them has, you know, Rembrandt or something like that. What are you going to do? Are you going to focus on the value of the painting? Or are you going to focus on the condition that you found it in? I'm guessing that you're going to be excited and passionate about the fact that you found this, this, this valuable painting. And you're going to do something about the mud eventually, but, but your initial response is going to be enthusiasm and excitement about this wonderful gift, this masterpiece. When that woman walked into the room, Jesus saw a masterpiece. Simon saw mud. Jesus saw a woman created in God's image, created for eternal glory. But all Simon saw was inappropriate dress and embarrassing behavior. Jesus saw her potential as a human being. Simon saw her sinful past. Now, it's easy to condemn Simon the Pharisee here. How could he be so clueless, 
so intolerant, so hard-hearted. But the sad truth is, in so many religious circles, this can happen all the time. We can tend to see the addiction instead of the pain. We can see the inappropriate dress instead of their need for somebody to notice them. We can see their sexual recklessness instead of their longing to be loved. We can hear their foul language instead of their fear of not being heard at all. We react to the sin instead of responding to the need. Who knows how many people have walked away from churches because of a lack of mercy. There's a book by John Burke, a pastor of a church in Austin, Texas. He and a small group of people decided they, they had a burden, they had a vision to reach people who were far from God, especially those 40 years and under. And so they did some research into the lifestyles of this demographic, and this is what they discovered. One out of three women would have had an abortion. Nearly two out of six women would have been sexually molested. Most of the men struggled with pornography. Most of the singles were sexually active. Six out of ten would think that living together before marriage was a good idea. Five of ten had already done that. One out of seven involved with drugs or alcohol. Two out of five struggled with smoking. And 85% were unchurched. And so John Burke and his group you know, were kind of stunned by this, but they decided they wanted to reach these people, and so they were going to create a very different kind of culture in their church, and they called it Come As You Are Church. That no matter what you looked like or, or lived like or smelled like, they would meet you wherever you were without passing judgment and patiently and graciously work to lead those people to Jesus Christ who alone could save them and change them. And so on the first day of the church, they adopted this motto, No Perfect People Allowed. That should be the motto of every church, right? And hundreds and thousands of people have come to know Christ and been transformed. We are called to follow the example of Jesus Christ. To point them to the love and truth and grace of Jesus. And to welcome all people and to show them love and mercy. And mercy means everybody is welcome. Mercy means we look beyond people's faults and see their need. That we focus on the masterpiece and not the mud. Sooner or later, Jesus will work with the mud. He's the only one, ultimately, that can change a person's life. But it begins with mercy. It begins with respect. It begins with unexpected kindness. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus said. For they will be shown mercy. Real quickly, I want to make a couple more comments. People hear this and they say, is Jesus saying that if we don't show mercy to other people, that he won't show mercy to us? Not, not entirely. He's simply reminding us that we are people in need of mercy too. That we are people who have received mercy. And so therefore, of all people, we should be the most merciful. Because we all stand and fall short of the glory of God. We all have our hang-ups, our guilt, our shame, our habits, our hurts, our woundedness. We all have mud in our lives. But Jesus looks beyond our faults. He sees our needs. And he washes us clean to reveal the masterpiece beneath. And so if Jesus Christ has done that for us, how can we show anything less to others? So let's ask God to give us eyes that See others as children of God, not sinners covered with mud. 
Let's ask God to give us ears to listen and not minds that jump to judgment. And let's ask God to give us tender hearts that look beyond people's faults and see their need. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that though we deserve judgment, you give us mercy. Lord, we thank you for the the story that we have read of Jesus' love for this woman. As we hold up the scripture to our lives, it's like a mirror, Lord. Lord, we know that we are sinners, just like the Pharisee, just like the woman. Our sins may be different, but they're sins nonetheless, and we are in need of your mercy. We thank you for the mercy we have through faith in Jesus. And because of the mercy we have received, Lord, may we be merciful to others. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.